1: Hello there. Welcome to All Things Therapy. I'm your host, Lisa Tahir. Welcome to all of you watching on Facebook Live and those of you who are listening on the various podcast platforms. Thank you for subscribing. I always love to give appreciation to you, my subscribers and followers. I wouldn't be doing this show if you weren't listening. So, lots of gratitude. Please continue to subscribe and rate my show on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, everywhere that you can find podcasts. It is all things therapy. On social media, you can find me at NOLAtherapy, N-O-L-A, therapy.com, the abbreviation for New Orleans, Los Angeles Therapy. I have started to do a daily Instagram post. I'd love for you to follow me there on Facebook, NOLA Therapy, Twitter, and um, I love getting these podcasts out. I've had so many interesting guests. Today is no exception. We will get to her in just a moment. I'm honored to have my guest today who is with us. I wanted to do a bit of social consciousness. I, before coming to the studio, I look a little, you know, in a baseball cap and workout clothes, but on my heart has always been the way that animals are treated inhumanely in Asian countries, particularly around the dog meat trade and the cat meat trade. So ladyfreethinker.org is an organization that I support with my money and signing petitions. And we just now protested at the consulate general's office in Koreatown, Los Angeles, to end the dog meat trade. And I'm wearing a T-shirt today that says Save Korean org. Hashtag Save Korean Dogs. They actually have ended many of the dog meat festivals around Asia and shut them down. Today, we had 600,000 signed petitions from people like you around the world that want to see this barbaric practice end. And my guest today, I, in fact, have interviewed her daughter, if you are a Los Angeles local. And if not, her daughter has an amazing company called Vegan Scene. S-C-E-N-E, you can order products online that are cruelty-free. So with that, I'm going to move into my guest. It's an honor, it's a treat that we are with today. Retired pro tennis champion, Julie Heldman. She has earned a top five world ranking during her career as a tennis professional. She is one of the first nine professional women's tennis players ever in the history of of tennis, You can even look her up on Wikipedia and find this out. She's had victories over Billie Jean King, Chris Everett, Martina Navratilova, to name a few. She has won multiple Olympic medals, gold, silver, and bronze, 22 pro titles, and she was portrayed in the 2017 movie Battle of the Sexes. We are discussing that and this memoir that she has put out titled Driven, A Daughter's Odyssey. You can order it on Amazon or by going to drivenadaughtersodyssey.com. And in this memoir, she discusses realizing as she became older, growing up in a household of emotional abuse by her mother and not knowing it as such because we typically grow in, in, in one family, our own, and we often don't know what is dysfunctional until we get out into the world. And she used tennis, she has used writing to heal from her own struggles with mental health, that she's going to share with us and and julie i'm just delighted to have you on today
2: i'm really happy to be here lisa I look forward to this
1: yes thank you what, i know you just got back from wimbledon being there you played nine wimbledons where I, I just have to say that out loud where would you like to start and welcome home thank you um i i uh I expected worse jet lag than I have because it's been
2: so long since I traveled. I really didn't know what to think. Uh, but uh, I'm pleased to say that going west seems to agree with me. Good. Coming back home also agrees with me. You talk about uh, standing up for the dogs. We have we have two dogs. Well, one just recently at last we could go passed away. I'm sorry. So I'm thinking about dogs and, and the other animals
1: who are part of our life yes me too yeah so you said where did i want to start yeah um with with your (laughs) memoir your career your life yeah um
2: as in therapy as anywhere else a lot starts from when you're very young and my mother was um she didn't have a lot of empathy growing up. She had a highly successful father and a kind of rigid mother. Mm-hmm. And she never learned about personal empathy. And something got stunted early, though, was she was wildly successful in the area of tennis. She loved, she took up playing when she was 23. She played all the time. She played tournaments. She won tournaments, even though she started so late. Yeah. Then she started a magazine which became the world's most important tennis magazine it was called world tennis and she edited published it and ran it for 19 years but uh being a mother was not something she was ever drawn to Mm -hmm. she did what you were supposed to do in the 1940s she had two kids right away but all she really wanted to do was uh, be with her new love which was tennis Mm. and in some way i was lucky that she had not been around much when I was, she wanted to start playing tennis when I was three months old. In some ways that was lucky because she was, she, she was not set, meant to have been a, a mother. And in another ways, I was completely unlucky because she was a highly narcissistic mother who chose a victim child and I was fat. Mm-hmm. And that means that there was verbal abuse there was humiliation, there was isolation from the outside world, there was neglect of my emotional and physical needs. I was a sickly child, and I just wasn't taken care of so uh anything that came out of that it, it was it kind of it was i had a poisoned childhood in some ways, so that as I went forward. I I, my parents were both very driven to succeed to succeed and I took that on even though I was treated as the dumb one and the ugly one in the family but to succeed when I was eight years old my mother sent my sister and me off to a tennis camp we had no interest in tennis but she (laughs) needed us out of that she was doing something else and I went to this place where there was an incredible drive to succeed it was the the man was a very good man who ran the place Mr. Hoxie in Hamtramck, Michigan he said things like you don't win you don't eat Mm. and he said tennis tennis is never for fun tennis is only about winning wow so you can see that thing like an easygoing kind of relationship to tennis but I just had to be somebody I was driven to be somebody and it took a couple of years And really, I didn't start being really, really good until I was 11 and 12. And when I was 12, I won the Canadian National 18 and under. And then I won some other major junior titles, including the U.S. National Juniors. And people would, uh, my sister would say back in that era, she said she hated being on the other side of the court because I had this look on my Mm -hmm. face. And total ferocity was kind of mimicked what was going on inside. I was not going to give up. So I spent many years playing tennis, and eventually I started traveling because I went with my university. I went to Stanford in France, and then I got to travel around Europe, and then that was fun. So I enjoyed doing that, but by that time, right around the time I went, there were signs uh, that I had bipolar disorder, but nobody knew about that in that era. Right, and you weren't so diagnosed it was-
1: until you were 50, correct? I was not diagnosed until I was 50, correct. Yeah. So you didn't even... And
2: I had some some pretty significant ups and downs.
0: Sure.
2: um, Including when I was lucky enough to have been named to the Federation Cup team of the United States. That's a world team championships. I played number two behind Billie Jean in 1966. Wow. And I I, I played my heart out during the day. And I went up into my room at night. I was like flooded with suicidal thoughts. Yeah. I
0: read that. So it
2: was... I was, you know, it was like, um, uh, it, 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 it drains a person.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And if you don't know where it's coming from, yeah, it's, it's possible to deal with,
1: you know, so, do, but, but my, yeah, go ahead. Something that you wrote about that really struck me in your memoir and that I'm reflecting on as I hear you speaking is growing mm-hmm. up with an empathy deficient mother and not knowing that you're just a young one trying right. to make your way through life. And I I read and it stood out when Laura, the woman who was you and your sister Carrie's maybe nanny or caretaker, Laura from Mississippi, became a part of your life at a young age. And you wrote that she gave you the gift of love and that saving you. I wonder if you could share a little bit about that, because it sounds like she was some shelter for you and refuge from just the emotional lack that you experienced uh, from your mom? Yeah, I think that, you know, we talk about how important
2: it is to get that love when you're very, very little. And from Laura, I got it. I did not get it from my mother. And my sister didn't get it from Laura because Laura didn't come to work for us until she was like two or three. Okay. She got it then. But when I was a little one, she held me and she mm. was soft. And if I was sickly, she her heart broke for me and she tried to take care of me. Those kinds of things you totally want she gave me in need you needed that but uh, so that i do believe she saved me Mm -hmm. in many ways but um she was not educated and she was a black woman from the south who was clearly mistreated and as i grew older she became less important to me and i do believe it's because she was so demeaned By the way, society in general treated her. My mother always paid her well, but there was there was no attempt to bring her in closer. I she never watched me play tennis, and I played tennis from the ages of eight. Wow. So that says something.
1: Right, and your mom was verbally abusive to her too. I I remember reading to everyone. It sounds like who was in her path at home. I don't know if she was like that professionally with world tennis or if that was just your private experience of her behind closed doors
2: as far as i can tell it was the private experience family different Um, she did not yell at my sister because she had this interesting mythology that my sister was just like her and i was just like my father and somehow that protected my sister from that abuse and humiliation and so there's another aspect to it that a lot of people will understand. My mother decided she had to be build this magazine and she worked her tail out day and night and became a high-functioning alcoholic. She yes. weighed about 115 pounds and she had two double vodkas before lunch and two double scotches before dinner.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So that's how she got by. I think she was never diagnosed with bipolar. She, wouldn't even go. she hated all doctors. But I would say that you, there was some form of self medication
1: Absolutely. And and my understanding is that her father, your grandfather, died of cirrhosis of the liver, though that wasn't the, the answer given, that that's what you learned later mm-hmm. on, that he was alcoholic also. Yes. Yeah.
2: Yes. And, and uh, some we don't know what aspects of that were the way she was treated and he was treated and what aspects of that were chemical. But whatever it was, they were both alcoholic, that's for sure. And your My mom- mother started drinking after my her father's parties at home ah. when she was 11. you would go in the other room and drain every glass.
1: Okay. You know, it stands out to me too, Julie, that when you were little, when you were eight, that you would have to prepare dinner. You'd bring your mom, her double scotch, prepare dinner, get her to dinner. And when I've heard you speak about it on other interviews, like it, it's obvious to me you didn't think anything of it. You're just doing what? mom expected you to do what was it like to start to awaken to wow like this was abuse this is not (laughs) healthy like how what was that process like for you emotionally to start realizing the truth of your childhood i had a
2: i had a really nice uh family doctor in london i was living in london in the mid-70s And um, I'd met him very recently. He said, hey, you wanna go out to lunch? I thought, wow, this guy's nice to me. So I went out to lunch and he said, I made an appointment for you with a therapist. I thought, well, I don't need to do that. (laughs) I'm not gonna do that. So I didn't go. He calls me up and he says, I hear you missed the appointment, go. (laughs) So I went and after about the second appointment, I started all these stories of my youth came pouring out. Mm. And I went home thinking nothing, nothing of it. And within an hour or two, I could not stop crying because she had said to me, the therapist had said after about the second appointment, she had said, you know, you didn't have to have a family like this. You didn't have to have a mother like this. And it was so extraordinary for me to actually face it. And it it was pretty darn impossible for me to face. And there was a a whole lot of. disassociation this didn't really happen and i don't know and but uh it took many 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 years to just see clearly and that was one of the benefits of writing the book is they would look not only at how i was feeling on many levels but i'd look at the facts and say wait a minute they didn't tell me about that one of which is when we moved to um houston texas my father worked for an oil company, so we moved a couple of times. Mm-hmm. We moved to Houston, out on the outskirts of Houston, Texas. And I began to realize that when we moved there when I was four, that I hadn't seen or played with another child until I was nearly seven. Wow. And so um, I think that the most benign way of looking at it was that my mother just didn't pay attention. I have no idea why other than that it would have been. So and and so extraordinary, and I never thought anything of it. Nobody ever said anything. My mother, my father, my sister—nothing. It was just, you know, here, here's life. So there were events like that that I, once I started putting the pieces together, I began to have um, a more a sense of, of, of that I am of, of living in my own skin. Yeah. because I could see why I would have so many of these problems.
1: Yes, it started to come together for you yeah here you know and yeah. your mom took her life in 2003 correct yes I wondered she did. what was going on how that was for you and and just I'm so sorry first of all when when I learned that well it's it's a uh, it um a
2: lot of complicated things were going on I was diagnosed with bipolar in 1996 and I believe that the medicines that I began to take, uh, although they kind of dulled me out, didn't heal, and I did—I was unable to keep going at as fast a pace as I had gone for years. After I quit playing tennis, I did a whole—I did broadcasting, I did writing, I did—I um, went to law school, yeah. I was a lawyer. I went yeah, to you're a lawyer. <laughs> so at each stage, I was going faster. And I tried to slow down and I just keep, pulling. and it so that when I started taking these medicines, believe it or not, I think they took away my coping mechanism.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: I couldn't go as fast anymore. I believe you. Yeah, you can and be as highly functional. And, and even though I, so I kept doing stuff and I started going downhill rapidly. And in the year 2000, I had a breakdown. I couldn't have known then, but it it ended up lasting almost 15 years. Okay. My mother died three years after, and there's a really interesting thing that happened once my husband, Bernie, called uh, my mother and said, okay, Julie is not doing well. Mm-hmm. I, I hadn't told her I had bipolar, but it was, this was clear that I wasn't, I wasn't functioning much. So instead of being kind of diminishing me or anything like that, she started calling me. Mm. How are you? Your voice sounds better. What are you going through? This is the first time in my life ever. And I was. Yeah. And I was so I felt so good about it. I mean, it's sad, too, that it hadn't happened before, but happy that it was finally happening. And so that when she did take her life three years later, there was the loss of thinking that that could continue. Mm -hmm. Because um, it couldn't. She died. Um, She was. Very clear that she hated every doctor she was absolutely nutty about doctors. she thought they were out there to harm you, so that when she uh, the, the day before she died, she was feeling very unwell and more likely it, it, it seems to be that it was a it was a heart attack, certainly she had all of her major arteries were way clogged they, they did um, an autopsy because it was a violent death so she because she hated doctors so much she wanted to get out of life yeah before doctor could harm her more Mm -hmm. I mean it's completely nutty but that is who she was right and she had prepared prepared for it by having a gun and by uh, learning the way the fastest most efficient way to end your life
0: Mm
2: -hmm. she did not tell her family any of this she did not leave a note it was my daughter's Sixteenth birthday, mm. and so it was. It was she had so badly to get out of it that she thought of nothing that anybody else might need. Her needs were the only ones she could see at that time, and I'm not. I just think that it it, it could have been better for all of us yes. had she at least written goodbye. I love you. Yes, that just was not happening. My father had come into her in the in the morning. And she said, "Well, just leave me alone for a while." And ten seconds later, as he's leaving the room, she shot herself. So I mean, she really oh, didn't she really... think to him.
1: No, she didn't. I'm so sorry. And and at the same time, hearing that there were some years that she was able to ask about you and and be there in some way, I'm I'm glad yeah, that you had some it, of that healing. Yeah, it was it was it was a big change, and a really
2: interesting reason why I think is that when she when my parents moved, my father uh, retired in 82. My parents moved to uh, Santa Fe then, and my mother got a woman coach. It was just an angel. Her name is Claudia Montero, and um, she and my mother had such a bond, and Claudia was such a caring soul that for the first time ever, my mother was being mothered mm. by a woman probably 30 years or younger. Wow. Or junior. Wow. And I do believe that gave her the capacity to reach out. So she had that. Yeah. Yeah. So. Um, I know it was a. It, 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 I, I'm I sorry, had a you first. Of of, uh, you first. But it was
1: um, too short. Yeah. You know, I know for you it was a turning point to you. are a mother. And when you had your daughter yep. at 40, who I'm so uh, uh, happy that I know her. Have <laughs> interviewed her. She's lovely. That 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 was a big turning point in your life too. That you were going to be an empathetic mother. That you were going to be an available mother. This Valentine's Day, Duncan's got the perfect pairings to show your love. So get down on one knee with a dozen brownie batter donuts and a cocoa mocha signature latte, or make them swoon with a strawberry dragon fruit Duncan refresher with a Cupid's choice donut. Are you ready for love? America runs on Duncan. Price and participation may vary. Limited time offer.
2: Very much so. I didn't have many um, rules because I didn't know how to be a mother, which was, I guess most of us don't. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, I did know that I would do, to the extent possible, the opposite of what my mother had done to me and that I would love her with all my heart. Mm. That has been the rallying point for me. Mm -hmm. she is my beloved daughter
1: and um
2: that's as important as could be
1: yes absolutely Mm -hmm. you know i'm i'm this is a completely different trajectory if if you want to take it with me but i'm thinking how you shared before we came live that you just got back from wimbledon which is going on in England, and you played Wimbledon nine times. I have never been able to speak to somebody with your prolific career at a time when women's tennis – I mean, you were one of the first nine players ever. And with even what just happened with the U.S. soccer team and the unequal pay that is still going on that you've been an advocate for since back in the 60s, I'm just wondering your your take on all this and and what was Wimbledon like for you to, to go to after playing it so many years ago? playing it nine times i did um going back to wimbledon i was
2: absolutely flooded with emotion and i was trying to figure out what was going on and i started thinking about those things i was saying you know putting together the the facts of what went on and i realized that amongst those nine times there was four or five years when i was really um not doing well emotionally and um for a variety of reasons but it was uh therefore Wimbledon wasn't just the pure joy of having gone out to this the the mother of all tournaments um but uh it was I guess and while I was playing tennis I had tremendous boyfriend problems
0: okay and
2: one time Uh, i was supposed to get married and it didn't happen and everything exploded nasty Mm -hmm. and i uh, attempted to take my own life and then i played wimbledon just three months later wow wow and nobody was saying hey how are you it wasn't exactly what you would call publicized it wasn't at all Mm -hmm. but nobody was saying anything and my mother knew that I, I was hurting, and she never said anything. And it was um, how could I have had an easy time that tournament? I didn't, and that was maybe certainly the worst of times. But there were other times when bad things happened. So um, I was uh, in in order to kind of put it all together for what Wimbledon was. Um, you know, it, it, one of the things Wimbledon always was. Was uh, the place where the English public went tennis mad <laughs> for two weeks. The rest of the year they thought, oh, tennis is wonderful, but for those two weeks, it was on the BBC a hundred years ago. Before tennis was on the BBC, wow. I, I'm, I'm joking, but a hundred. Yeah. But it so that people would watch it like uh, morning to night. And so it, if you were playing Wimbledon, people would, you know, stop you in the street. Hello, I watched you. It was, a,
0: wow. it was
2: it, that did not exist anywhere in the world at that time. But Wimbledon always had a women's event and a men's event. The, all, all the four majors did. And the, the English tended to treat the women pretty well. But once money came in, nobody treated the women well Mm. money came in in 1968 when all the all the major tennis associations decided that there would be a possibility instead of having all the tournaments being amateur uh, some amount of them at the very least could be pro meaning there would be prize money but once that happened the men got more money and the women were put uh, put aside and uh, in fact during the year of 1970 which was the year I was just describing, when I was doing so badly. Um, there would often be there were weeks during the tennis season when there were no tournaments at all for women. There were other uh, weeks when the prize money was small,
0: mm-hmm.
2: and it all came to a head in August of two thousand as nineteen seventy when um, the Los Angeles tournament uh, decided that their prize money would be eight to one in favor of the men. And that the, the, the guy who was running the tournament was quite famous at the time, Jack Kramer, said that, well, women don't draw customers, so they don't need money. Mm. And some of the major tennis players, this is totally shocking. Some of the best, good-hearted men were totally against us. That's great. One of which was Arthur Ashe. He eventually realized he'd made a mistake years later, but there were, I mean, it was like everybody was against us. Men were running. Oh, I'm sorry, they were
1: against you. I thought you meant against the unequal pay. My bad. They were against the women. Oh, oh that's terrible. Everybody. Okay. And you all bonded to. I imagine you bonded together, even if you didn't like each other, just for some sense of solidarity.
2: Yeah, there is a lot of that, yes. But what happened was my mother... Bert uh, uh, Billie Jean King and two others w- went to my mother and said, you're great at running tournaments. Can you do something with eight? And so she started the very first Women's Pro Tournament, where the term original nine came from, because there were nine of us in the yes. tournament in Houston in 1970. And then she ran the tour for uh, three years. She was the person who engineered the success of the Women's Pro mm-hmm. Tour. Billie Jean King was the charismatic champion who was great with the press. Yeah, Without my without my, Billie Jean King and without the cigarette company that was our sponsor, Virginia this Slams. would not have happened. Yeah. yeah. But uh, so what did happen as the tour got started further on, there was just a few tournaments in the fall, but in January, there was that bonding you're talking about. It was about being in the trenches together. We were being uh, uh, attacked by all the associations and they were constantly doing crazy, nasty stuff. Uh, and You know, like you, you can't have a tournament because there'd be two... Professional tournaments in the United States at the same time. there was no rule. They made up rules mm-hmm. on the fly. They made three or four different rules on the fly. So, do I feel for the women's soccer players? Damn right. Yeah. they're not getting their money, and they should. Yes, but uh, they we all need to bond together. And you know, that's what the women tennis players did. They saw in part that there wasn't any opportunity outside of solidarity, that we needed to be solid. Yes. And that's what we did together, whether we loved each other or not.
1: You know, Julie, you've broken so many barriers, being one of the first nine professional women tennis players and also being Jewish. I think that's another layer of your memoir. There's so many layers in, in your memoir that yes. that being a Jewish woman at this time. And, and tennis was played – before it got bigger at a lot of private clubs. I know when you lived in New York, it was in fact a, a Jewish country club that your family mm-hmm. was admitted in because of your grandfather's status and reputation in the community as an attorney, but that, you know, you it wasn't easy as a Jewish woman either. There just so many obstacles that you kept breaking through and going beyond. And can you share with us some, some of that, like being a first at, at these things? Well, the thing about being Jewish, there were
2: definitely some uh, uh, very difficult times. It was nowhere near as difficult to be Jewish as it was to be Black
0: Mm. and
2: to be completely shut out. Um, It was true that the women's tournaments, the big tournaments, in the sixties, as everything was about to begin to change, what the, those big tournaments were played at clubs that would not have allowed a Jew in as a guest when it wasn't the time of the tournament. So wow. I had to play the tournament, but I wasn't really accepted. Wow. And that was certainly uh, something that everybody knew had to change. Everybody knew, I don't know. really, Jean knew early because she was a kid, a fireman's kid coming from long beach and the people at the la tennis club treated her badly because she wasn't didn't know how to dress the way they were dressing Mm -hmm. which is you know there was a lot of you have to look exactly like this and um Mm -hmm. i think that it's wonderful that we've largely gotten past that but i lived through the 60s we had to become completely outrageous not on the tennis court sometimes, but completely outrageous in order to kind of, have for the, the pendulum to swing back to the middle. I remember once I was, was I trying to get from a tournament in northern Italy to the first French Open in May of
0: 1968.
2: Okay. And we had to go downtown in Milan to get our tickets done. And we said, okay, let's go look at the cathedral. But the cathedral, they wouldn't let us in because our skirts were too short. Wow. It was, the world was blowing up in every which way. There were assassinations, there were strikes, and they cared about my skirt being too short. Yeah. So a lot of that has changed, not all. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that uh, how people, I mean, the fact that women are supposed to wear a skirt on the court is like completely weird. Yeah. Why? Because right. it's old. And, and, but, you know, there there's some stuff where they just say, okay, our rules are the rules and we have an interesting rule problem coming up because next year 2020 will be the 50th anniversary of the international tennis sorry of the original nine and we believe it would be correct for the the international tennis hall of fame to admit us in 2020 yeah but they're they're making a lot of noises like well we have rules and their rules are about as good as those rules 50 years ago.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: It, it's just nuts. But we can't do it till 2021. What, on the 51st anniversary? Are you crazy?
1: Right. But that, that is some of the stuff that's going on at the moment. And that I'm you're still dealing a bit of this. an advocate yeah. for that. Absolutely. You're an advocate. Yeah. So I'm curious when you, and, you wa- know, go on. You yeah, first. go ahead.
2: Well, it's just that uh, when we were starting the Women's Pro Tour, mm-hmm. And everything was so new. The only way to think about it was for us to do everything we could possibly. We taught clinics during tournaments, we went to cocktail parties, we played pro ams, we uh, did everything possible. If nobody was around, we would sit on the line uh, to, to, to call lines. I mean, it was like we knew this was our future. We didn't think anything of the fact that we had to work hard to get it because that's what we wanted.
1: Yes. Yes. I was curious, being at Wimbledon and just getting back to Los Angeles, did you notice any changes, anything significant from when you played Wimbledon? There's a lot of
2: good changes. I criticize wimbledon rightfully for what it was like back then mm-hmm. it was kind of grim in the locker rooms and it was dark and it was cold because yeah, i once played wimbledon having to wait to get on the court for my, my match it was 38 degrees in the locker room oh
1: my god so oh yeah
2: and the, the food was disgusting and now it looks like this bright place i didn't go in the locker room but the, the, there's it's certainly everything has been up, mm-hmm. and there's 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 two courts now, center court and court one that have uh, a, a a roof, a retractable roof. They've changed the kind of grass that they use so that it's actually it plays slower. That was a conscious attempt, I think, in order to make the men's matches more fluid and long lasting. But there uh, there are. Every which way they're buying new property, they're changing this and that. they're trying every way to to retain their status as the 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 golden girl of international tennis,
1: yeah, you know, Julie, one of the questions I wanted to ask you, going back to something in your memoir is and the different trajectories and layers of your memoir is that you just the role of tennis to allow you let me start over how did tennis allow you to channel your emotion now as you look back having awareness of the kind of childhood you grew up in without empathy and and just having that release yet it was pressure I'm just curious what your thoughts are now being older and having more self-awareness when you look back I think that uh, that um a short phrase that I've
2: used, I, I truly believe it, it is real. Tennis allowed me to be somebody.
0: Mm.
2: I grew up in a household where I was treated like the victim child. And it's hard to think, oh, I feel fine about myself. But when I cl- learned to play tennis, large part of that time, certainly all summer long, um, I was away from my mother, away from whatever that way I was being treated. And I could actually develop a self and that self surrounded me being, was me being a fighter and uh, somebody who could win. It took me a couple of years to learn to win, but that gave me, you know, that and what Laura gave me, the love and the softness that she gave me, it gave me the ability to, to, to fight through things. I mean, I played uh, not infrequently while injured or ill.
1: Yeah, I read
2: I that. One, I read that. Yeah, one time I played in, in in the the Orange Bowl in Miami Beach, and I was literally coughing my guts out. I was an asthmatic
0: mm.
2: at, at every, after every point, and then I'd stand up and play the next point. I learned to problem solve. Tennis gave me a lot of that. Tennis school. But um, it was a matter of, okay, this isn't going well. What am I going to do now? Yes. And n- not, not that it is possible to do every time. Circumstances often don't allow it. But it was the way I wanted to try to work it out myself. That gave me some, nobody was telling me what to do on the court. That is part of what tennis is, isn't
1: it?
0: Yes.
2: Nobody's
1: out there. You, you got to be figuring it out that's what I loved about it the strategy and and you speak about that as well in interviews in your book that you loved playing a strategized game and really having your head in it with your body Mm -hmm.
2: that to me was
1: a lot of the um,
2: sense of
0: satisfaction
2: if I was going out there and I could figure out what to do Yeah. Yeah. another piece of satisfaction is I had a really good forehand and I just loved hitting the hell out of my (laughs) forehand Cr- I got it that must have felt good. <laughs> to oh, yeah. get out your pent up <laughs> anger, oh uh, yeah or yeah, or
1: just this is gonna help me be somebody hmm identity, I hear you talking about identity, yep,
2: correct so in and the the identity I had at home from my mother was um not but good. So to be able to develop it on my own was something, you know, I never could do it entirely because there was always those other voices in my head. But when I was in the middle of it, in the throw of it fighting, there was this other problem though, is that starting in my teens, when I started doing well, my mother would undermine me. And um, I, I like. Well, I don't like to say, but I say is that uh, it's like straddling a razor's edge,
0: mm-hmm.
2: damned if I won and damned if I lost.
0: Yeah. Because
2: if I won, she was envious. Not 100% of the time, but often. If I lost, I felt crappy because I was the useless kid. Mm. So it, it was hard to find a path yes. in the middle of all
0: that.
1: And and I hear you talking about themes of individuation, that it was impossible to, to individuate as a young person from your mother to find your own identity. And, and I hear you talking, you finally were able to start teasing them apart. Who's, who's the woman your mother wanted you to be and who's the Julie that was you. And you were able to articulate yourself over time in a more self-defined way and be a different kind of mother, which is huge. (laughs) I would put
2: uh, a lot of positive responsibility on psychoanalysis,
1: and you talk about going, that. Through, yeah,
2: yeah, and going through it—you know, one piece at a time—and actually reliving or living for the first time a lot of the painful stuff has helped to uh, to free me. A lot of really wonderful modeling. Mm-hmm. Has shown me that uh, that I'm okay. I guess that's what is
1: what is. You know, and I appreciate your transparency in your memoir and and in this interview. Someone could look at mm-hmm. you easily and think, "Oh my gosh, you know, this woman, top five in the world who who gets to do that and be that?" and and yet mm-hmm. you're, you're transparent about the emotional struggles that you kept coming back to and persevering and even the suicidal thoughts and feelings and believing and having hope and now being able to share that openly. I think your message is powerful and I know that's a part of the legacy that you want to leave, that we can help ourselves by asking. And I wonder Mm -hmm. if you could share more about your intention for your memoir, what that's been like to put it out here and have people read it and, and know more of what it was like.
2: And I found something
1: interesting
2: about stigma. I say I don't have stigma about uh, having a mental illness. I just don't want to talk about it because so <laughs> no, this, this is sort of this there's a this, uh, uh, this is somewhere in between. I'm there so that in a lot of people, from what I gather, what I've seen, do not want to discuss. About mental illness, mm-hmm. and um, I, to, to some large extent, I realize it's just who I am. I mean, would I be? Would I have a stigma about asthma? Of course, asthma is not hidden, and a lot about mental illness is either hidden or it's misunderstood, both by the person and by others.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: But um, I think that. Needing to go through each step at a time, what part of it is the part that feels need I have felt like I needed to hide, mm. and do I still need to hide it, and I don't, yes, but sometimes yes. it comes up, but having said that, and others feel that way, and there's nobody there's no right or wrong here, it's a matter of. Is there a way of being able to talk to somebody and say, I need help, or I need to tell you what's going on. And once you can sort of break through that barrier, whether it's little or big, maybe there's hope for breaking further because. Yeah, I've had um, some pretty tough times. Yeah. But they don't define me. They are just what has happened to me. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I don't have a, a terrific problem about telling about it. It's, it's, it's a life. There's certainly a part of me that wanted to write the book so that people would see that I didn't live just a privileged life. Right. That I, that I thought people thought of me. Oh, look at her. Isn't she privileged?
1: No, there was um, so much more going just, on. Uh, deeper. Sorry? There was so much more going on at a deeper level that was uh, so hard that you were going through concurrently. Right. So um, in, in terms of, I, when I was
2: writing the book, there was a a woman was a tennis player We're working on a project in the tennis world. Her name was Cynthia Derner, And I said, well, you know, I'm thinking about writing about mental illness in the book also. And she just Took me by the hand and she said, You're gonna help people if you will. You're not alone out there. So many people have problems too. That just struck me in the heart. Hmm. So um, she's right. I mean, I I can't really harm myself by telling the truth. In fact, it may make it easier for me to believe my own truth.
1: Yeah. Julie, I have loved having you on. I will cherish this interview. And additionally, knowing that I interviewed Rebecca, who actually I remember her telling me that you were so supportive when she became vegan at in high school. I'm remembering that now that I'm sitting with you. Well, you know, well, we're gonna we're all
2: individuals, mm-hmm. us, us family members, and then our animals. Everybody from our dogs and our cats to our 35 year old. Desert tortoise. <laughs> and, we're all,
1: and we're all individuals and we all can show love in different ways. So for people to find you, what is the best way for them to find you on social media and order your book driven a daughter's odyssey?
2: Um, I think that to find the book, um, my uh, website and I'm also up on Instagram and Twitter but I'm not remembering exactly where to send people. I
1: have your you okay. are at Junk Ball Jewel J U N K B A L L J U L. I got the I got the Thanks. info on you, Julie. I got your back. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and you realize
2: Junk Ball Jewel is the way I used to play tennis, right?
1: No, I didn't know that. I wondered about that name. Junk Ball is because I hit high and low, soft and hard.
2: In the slice and tap spin, it was uh, like a junk ball picture. Picture so that's I great, I was ball.
1: Wow. Julie. Thank, thank you so much no, for you-
2: having read so beautifully the, the 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 book and for this wonderful interview.
1: You're so welcome. My honor. I hope you have a great rest of your afternoon. You too. Thank you. Bye. That concludes my time with tennis champion, Julie Heldman, and her memoir, Driven, A Daughter's Odyssey. Thank you for being with me today. Please listen in next Thursday. And I forgot to say at the beginning of my show, I'm accepting new clients. If you are looking for an intuitive psychotherapist, I do remote sessions online through Skype and FaceTime, as well as phone sessions and in person at either office that I have in Los Angeles or New Orleans. And please join my email list at nolatherapy.com. And I hope everyone has a wonderful week. Bye.
0: Indeed, listening is the new reading. With
1: Audible, you can listen to an unlimited amount of books. At home, in your car, at the gym, anywhere on the go, with over 180,000 audiobooks to choose from. For you, the listener of All Things Therapy, Audible is offering you a free audiobook download and a month-long subscription for you to try them out. Visit audibletrial.com forward slash all things therapy
0: now and enjoy
1: And in all, make the world a better place for everyone. You're listening to All Things Therapy.